All right, if you would uh, head back to your seats. I think I told a few of you guys this week, as I, if, if I met with you this week, that, uh, uh, well, you probably experienced this. Um, you know, I've been out of the pulpit now for like four of the last five weeks, and the preacher's got to preach. And so poor people, anytime they met with me this week, I was just preaching to people all over the place. Even last night at a baby shower, I was just preaching to people, and I was like, gosh. So maybe today when I can preach, it'll kind of get out of my system, and when you meet with me, it'll settle down a little bit. But just don't, no, don't bear with me. I'm going to preach to you, and it's going to happen. I hope you enjoy it, um, but I'm excited about today. <laughs> so good to be back with you. Good to be uh, back in the pulpit teaching God's word and, and proclaiming Christ to you. We are, as a church, going through the book of John, and this morning we find ourselves in chapter 13. Just a little context of where this is. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet, and now he's entering into the time when he's going to tell his disciples he's going to be betrayed. And so this is the story of Jesus' betrayal or coming to knowledge of it and speaking into it. The title of this morning's message, if you want to know a title, if it's helpful to you, is called The Fog. The Fog. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to John 13, 21 through 30. And just note, I, I see it's wrong in the bulletin. We make mistakes. We need grace. Sorry about that. It's John 13, 21 through 30. So if you have a Bible, follow along with me uh, there. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. My children have a book in their rooms that I read to them from time to time that I've come to view as quite parabolic, a children's book that's really more of a parable. It's called The Circus Ship, and I want to read to you the first few pages. It's not long. Children's books are quite short. So I just want to set the scene by reading to you the first few pages of this book. Five miles off the coast of Maine and slightly overdue, a circus ship was steaming south in fog as thick as stew. On board were 15 animals who traveled to and fro. The next day it was Boston for another circus show. The captain, Mr. Carrington, was honest and sincere. He thought that they should drop the hook and wait for things to clear. But Mr. Payne, the circus boss, was terribly demanding. He stomped up to the helm where Captain Carrington was standing. He screamed, don't stop, keep going, I've got a show to do. Just get me down to Boston Town tomorrow, sir, by two. I want to ask you the question, can you relate to this circus ship? Like this circus ship, you know what it's like to be in the midst of the fog of life. 
Perhaps at an early age, you moved into a new town, and when you moved there, you felt like an outsider. You felt insecure, lost, and confused at what was in front of you. Maybe the friends were mean to you or, or whatever. But at an early age, you realize life can feel like a fog, lost and confused. But of course, the older we get, the fog can still remain. It can stick around. You get fired from a job and you don't know what to do or where to go. You experience the frustrations of not being able to find a spouse and feel the hopelessness of whether or not it's going to change. You see your kids walk away from the Christian faith and there's no amount of arguing that you can do to convince them otherwise. You're hopeless, you're lost, you're living in a fog. I think we all can say that we've had the fog, but the, quest, but the pressing question for all of us in the midst of the fog is what do we do when the fog settles down? Like Mr. Carrington, do we drop hook and sit where we are? Or like Mr. Payne, do we press on, pushing for more, pushing for clarity? I come to believe, as I live my own life and experience this myself and deal with other people, is that many people choose the way of Mr. Payne, pushing on, pushing through the fog, not taking inventory of what's taking place, and just pushing on. We can be in the midst of a fog. Life can feel like one big mystery. But we just say, here we go. Let's just keep going. You probably know this very well when you walk into church. You come into church and you say to hey to everyone and then the response comes back to you, hey, how's it going? And you could be in the thickest fog of your life. You spend the nights weeping yourself to sleep for whatever it is. But when someone asks you, how's it going, the question comes into your mind and the response is, I'm fine, good to see you. It's pressing on. It's not being honest about where we are in the fog. You're depressed and you're sad, but you give off this feeling that we're all good. I know we do this for a couple of reasons, and I'm not gonna spend a lot of time, but I, I think we do this because we live in a culture that despises dropping hook. It despises us staying where we are and saying, I don't know why the fog is here, but I'm here. It, our culture demands forward momentum, not hurting and brokenness. Those things are seen as weakness, and weakness is hated in our culture. So we assume, press on, press on. And our culture has made its way into the church. So even the church, church that's been equipped with being able to stay in the fog, presses on, and we fake it, thinking we'll make it. But here's the thing about the fog, and I am speaking parabolically here. You have no clue where you're going. You have no clue what's around the corner. The fog is filled with uncertainty and unknowns. And when this happens, there are challenges that you won't know what to deal with. I wanna pick up the story where I left off in the circus ship right after Mr. Payne demanded the ship to move. Here's what it says. Then came a crash, an awful bash. Things flew into the air. The ship had smashed into a ledge that no one knew was there. The shattered ship began to tip and sank without a sound. The splashing, thrashing animals swam round and round and round. You see, when we press into the fog, just saying, we'll get through it. I'll fake it till I make it. 
what we are bringing upon ourselves is inevitable disaster. When we push through the fog, we open ourselves up to the loss of friends and perhaps even to the loss of our faith. So we need to drop hook. To drop hook in the midst of the fog and wait. To slow down, to consider where we are. This is where I think our text helps us tremendously today. That when the fog comes, that we can drop hook and be okay with uncertainty and doubt and, and, and just unknown. I think our text provides us with three hooks that we can then drop and, and, and even in the midst of uncertainty to find peace. The hooks that I'm referring to are the characteristics of Jesus that we find in our text. And the three characteristics in this text that we find that gives us peace in the midst of uncertainty, that gives us hope in the midst of the fog are these three characteristics. Jesus relates, Jesus rules, and Jesus redeems. I want us to study these three characteristics that we might take them and that when the fog of life comes, we might drop them and find comfort and find hope and peace amidst the fog of our lives. So let's study these three characteristics. The first characteristic, as I mentioned, is that Jesus relates. You know this, and I know this, that perhaps one of the greatest challenges of being in life's fog is the loneliness that pervades the time. Fog isolates us, and we can't see those around us. And then we begin to believe when we can't relate to anyone around us that no one understands what it is we are going through. No one can grasp the experience of our life. So we give in to the lie and sulk, and we fake it until we, we make it, but this brings disaster. And we cannot believe this lie that we are all alone in the midst of our fog. Why do I say this? Because in our text, Jesus enters into a fog of his own. Judas, one of his disciples, is set to betray him, and Jesus knows about it. In verse 21, Jesus says, in light of his betrayer, that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. This is a troubling experience that Jesus had had before. When his friend Lazarus had died, it said his spirit was troubled. So you get this sense that the trouble in his spirit is in response to a death of a friend. You might know this. You might have lost a grandparent, a father, a mother, a dear friend, and you know what it's like. So does Jesus. But this trouble is more than just the death of a friend. It's the betrayal of one of his closest and most intimate uh, disciples. As you can imagine, his emotion would have been heavy. I mean, consider who, his, who betrays him, Judas. He was a disciple. He had handled the money for the disciples and for the ministry that Jesus had, a very intimate position. For three years, Judas had walked with Jesus. He's probably spent most of his waking moments with Judas. They shared fireside chats. They laughed together. They cried together. And yet Judas, one of his closest confidants, was about to betray him and turn him in to the authorities. You can imagine the pain that Jesus was experiencing. It's a deep troubling in his spirit. Look, it's easy to believe that when you are going through the fog of your life, whatever it might be, that you are all alone. But what this shows you is this, that Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be isolated, to be stabbed in the back, 
to be betrayed. He knows exactly what you're going through. The author of Hebrews says in chapter four, we do not have a high priest, and he's referring to Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. In the midst of your fog, do not fall for the lie that you are all alone, that you're the only one going through what you're going through, that you're the only one experiencing and feeling the emotions that you're feeling, because it's not true. Jesus himself has gone through the fog, and he knows exactly what it's like to go through what you've gone through. And the beautiful thing is that he makes himself available to you. He sympathizes with you. He relates to you. You know, one of the greatest challenges that my wife and I had in our, in our one of the greatest challenges that we've had in our 13 years of marriage was the battle that we had with infertility. We, we, we waited five years to have a baby, but when we started to try to have a baby, it just didn't happen. And then we lost two babies, and then we, we had a chemical pregnancy on the third, and it was just so difficult. Making matters worse, there were people in our church, it's really similar to our church, young people that are starting to have babies, and, and, and yes, you want to celebrate the, the life of a newborn, of your friends, but then they're incredibly insensitive to you, and it's like a kick in the gut over and over and over again, and it feels isolated, and it felt isolating. But there were a few people in our church who understood what it was like to go through infertility. And those were the people who could sympathize with us and could relate to what we were going through. And those were the people that we relied on in the midst of our fog. It's the same with Jesus. Jesus knows exactly what it's like to go through life to feel fog all around you. He knows exactly what it's like. And he has made himself available to you and to I when we experience the fog. Now how in the world do we relate to Jesus as he's made himself available to us when fog comes around us? You see, this is the beauty of prayer. And I wanna tell you that when you experience fog, pr prayer is, you know, we so th often think of prayer as just this, bringing our requests to God and, and do this, do that. It's like he's a magic genie, but prayer is certainly so much more than that. If you ever have, have, have really done a study of the book of Psalms, which is the Bible's book of prayers, you will know that there are Psalms that, that just speak of expressing yourself to God. And there's one in particular, Psalm 88, that you're like, how in the world did that make itself into the Bible? Because there's nothing good about this. This is just someone crying out to God and saying, how much longer, God? Seriously, how much longer is this gonna be? I am wasting away. And then it basically ends. I'll paraphrase that, okay? The point, though, being God himself has allowed you to express your emotion in his presence. So if you're hurting, if you're lonely, if you're isolated, there is freedom for you to say, this hurts. I'm lonely. And the Lord hears our prayers. I hope you feel the freedom to pray as you should. Shakespeare in in. in his play, The King Lear, one of the last lines, and it might be the last lines, and my memory evades me, but one of the characters said, the weight of this sad time we must obey. 
Speak what we feel, not what we ought. And I think that those are pertinent words to us in the midst of our fog. That when we feel the weight of the fog all around us, we feel isolated and lonely. Speak what we feel, not what we ought, to our God who relates to us in the midst of our fog. Drop that hook in your life and pray. Loneliness and isolation is certainly one of the great challenges of the fog when it comes upon us. But our text reminds us we are not alone in the midst of our trials, temptations, grief, and pain. Jesus relates to us. But there's a second challenge that will inevitably confront us in the fog, and that is the loss of control. When the fog of life settles on us, we lose our ability to see what's in front of us, what's beside us, and sometimes even what's behind us. And when we get into this situation, we have to determine where we go. When we lose control, <laughs> what do we do? Do we frantically work to make things right? Or do we settle? The only way we're gonna settle and drop hook is if we find a sense of security. And I'm here to tell you that we find that sense of security Again, from the characteristic of Jesus' rule that he displays for us in our text. We must remember this. Please remember this, that amidst the fog of your life, Jesus is still ruling. He hasn't climbed off his throne. He's still doing what he wants to be done. And this is hard to fathom, especially when the trials and the tribulations come. But look at the text. In the midst of the fog of his own life, Jesus is still in control. It grieves him, but he's still in control. Look, look at this. Number one, verse 21, he already knows he's going to be betrayed. Who but the ruler knows what's going to happen? And as, as he tells his disciples he's going to be betrayed, they're like, wait, who's going to do this? And so, so Peter looks at John and says, hey, figure it out. Who's going on? And so John leaning up against him is like, Jesus, what's going on? Like, who's going to betray it? And so Jesus, knowing he's going to be betrayed, takes bread and then he gives it to Judas, showing that not only does he know he's going to be betrayed, but he knows who's going to betray him. Jesus is definitely grieved, but he is in control of this situation. But I love the next verse, verse 27, because it shows us the wild rule of Jesus, the, the profound rule of Jesus. After Judas takes the bread from Jesus, it says in this strange way that Satan enters Judas. Not only do you have someone who's going against Jesus, now you have the great adversary of God, Satan himself, entering into Judas. The one who, 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 who had taken over people's lives. If you recall, what the legion of demons did to the man in Mark 5, how it ravaged him, and he, and he, he was just a crazy man. You can imagine what, what, what Satan would do to this, this strong and powerful angelic force enters into Judas, and yet, right in the midst of this, what's the next thing that happens? Jesus looks at Judas, and I guess we could say Satan, and he commands them. He directs them. What you are going to do, do quickly. He rules. 
Now, there's that paraphrase that, that John puts into his text. And I think, you know, that's certainly something because it shows you that they have no clue what's going on. They're in the midst of a fog of their own self, but they're not in control. And so they're like, Judas is just a, he's just going to get money for the feast. But Jesus is in control the whole time. And, and, and immediately, this is what's so profound. If we're thinking about it chronologically, the minute that Jesus says, the moment that Jesus says, do what you're going to do quickly, Judas gets up and he leaves. In the midst of the fog, Jesus was still ruling. Jesus was still ruling. Do you know that? You might not know the why of the fog, but do you know the who in the fog? I had a friend um, a few months ago, right after Thanksgiving, he's the father of five, and the week after his church plant closed, he had a serious bike accident. He went over the front of the handlebars while he was mountain biking and landed in such a way that it broke his neck. This began the fight for his life. He spent months in the hospital, including Christmas, where his family could only come to a window and see him from a window on Christmas Day. He's lost the use of his hands, or at least for the better part, and his legs. And though he has begun to demonstrate the ability to use them, I don't think there's great prognosis for him to be able to walk and to take care of himself. He goes to physical therapy on most days, but the menial tasks that you and I do without any thought, it takes a lot for him. And all things have to be done by his wife. He can't wrestle with the kids on the floor of the living room. He can no longer throw a ball with his oldest boy. His life is significantly changed and he is living in the midst of the fog. But you know one thing that hasn't changed? His trust that God is still ruling. I'll get updates from him from time to time, and he'll be honest about the difficulty of the fog. He's doing exactly what I thought the first point, is relate to God, but he's still trusting him. I don't know what, what's gonna come of his life or what will come, but he's trusting that God, that Jesus, is still ruling. And in the midst of it, he's trusting him. You know, no matter the situation that you face, no matter the fog that comes around, you must remember that Jesus still rules. If the elections don't go the way that you hope, Jesus is still on his throne. If you've gone through a painful breakup or a difficult rejection or even a bad marriage, Jesus is still on the throne. He's ruling, he's guiding, and he's directing. We must remember this and we must take this hook, this characteristic of God, and drop it into the waters when the fog's around us. This will bring us a semblance peace. Look, the fog is difficult. We can feel lonely and we can feel like we're out of control. But thanks be to Jesus who relates to us in our loneliness and rules despite the difficult circumstances. We can trust him. We can wait. But there's one final difficulty in the fog that I want to address. And that's the lack of hope that can pervade in the midst of it. 
Many have experienced seasons of fog that seem to never, ever end. I feel like people in Seattle can really relate to that. Thanks be to God I don't live in Seattle. That would be awful. San Francisco, too. That's another place that's like fog is always there. Perhaps you feel like you're in one endless cycle of fog after another. If this is you, hopelessness perhaps seems to be your closest friend, if you can call it that. But when we look closely at Jesus in this text, we see that while the fog may feel like it's never ending, we feel like the fog will never dissipate that in truth, the fog only lasts for a time. You know, there's four different accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of these four accounts, it's the book of John that fails to capture the last meal that Jesus shared with his disciples in detail. This is the meal we've come to know as the Lord's Supper. But while this meal is not recounted in detail, I think there's still reference to the meal, though not in full, in verse 26 of our text. After announcing his betrayal and betrayer, Jesus takes a morsel of bread, dips it, presumably in wine, and hands it to Judas. I'm not gonna say that this is the actual meal because the, the disciples gave reference to the meal that was coming, but it is in some ways a picture of the meal that Jesus would then soon institute. My body broken for you. My blood shed out for the remission of sins. And in this small and subtle way of Jesus taking the bread, dipping it into wine, he's saying to Judas, you have no idea what you're doing. You think you're doing it for good. It's actually bad. But even though it's bad, <laughs> it's good. Please use your imagination and consider the exchange that took place. Consider the significance of this small and subtle act that we gloss over so quickly. Jesus gives to the man who betrays him the symbol of his greatest victory. The body broken on the cross. The blood poured out for the remission of sins. Do you see this subtle message? Showing Judas a long-known truth that what man intended for evil, God intends for good. We have to see this truth. We All of us have significant problems in our life, sin and death. And I'm not going to go so far to say that the fog of your life is always a result of your sin. But I want you to acknowledge your sin. And I want you to acknowledge that you are going to die. These are problems. Sin keeps us from a holy God. And the penalty of said sin is death. They're always working in concert. But in this subtle moment, this exchange of this morsel of bread dipped in wine, Jesus is showing how he will bring the redemption to both of our most significant problems, sin and death. You see, and it's, his, it's in his death that Jesus becomes sin for those whom he loves. And it is in the cross where he bears the punishment of our sin for us, though he was without sin. And it was on the cross, with his body being broken and his blood being shed, that he dies for us in our place. But of course, death wasn't the end of Jesus. For in his death, it only brought about the overcoming of death and the resurrection. 
Jesus overcomes death, showing that he is greater in it, and he's working to make all things new. This subtle act of Jesus towards Judas is a small, subtle picture of the great redemption that he is working despite the fog. The Apostle Paul writes this, for we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And what better picture of God working all things for good than in being betrayed, being crucified, being the very act of our great redemption. My friends, in the midst of your fog, do not lose hope. Jesus is bringing redemption. And therefore, we can have confidence in the midst of the fog. You might have heard the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 through 50. It's an incredible story, and I'll recount it briefly. He was an arrogant. Joseph was this arrogant younger brother, and he always rubbed it in his face to the rubbed rubbed it in his face that to his brothers that he was the most beloved son of his father Jacob. His brothers, frustrated with him, decide, you know what? It'd be better that he's dead than alive, but we're not gonna kill him, we're gonna sell him into slavery. And so he sells him into slavery, he goes and eventually finds his way into a leader of Egypt's home. And he begins to serve and essentially be slaved there. And this man's wife takes to Joseph, but he decides, nope, I'm not going to fall for this. And so this frustrates her, so it eventually ends in prison. Joseph ends in prison. But in prison, he, he, being a dreamer, can start to interpret dreams, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and, and his dream was spot on. There was a famine that was coming, and Egypt needed to prepare for it. And so Pharaoh, seeing it all take place, goes, you are my second in command. And so Joseph, the son of Jacob, a Hebrew, who was sold into slavery by his brothers, ends up becoming second in command. Well, with the famine wreaking, wreaking havoc all over that area, what ends up happening? The the brothers decide we need to go into Egypt because that's where the food is because that's where there's a wise man not knowing it's his brother. And eventually they find out that Joseph, his brother, was in charge of Egypt and when they find out, they're afraid. But Joseph utters the words that I think what we have to remember in the midst of the fog and what we have to remember when we consider what Christ went through in his fog with Judas. He looked at his brothers and he said, what man intends for evil, God intends for good. What man intends for evil, the fog around you, and I guess you could put with Satan in the midst of it, what man and Satan intend for evil, God intends for good. And he's able to take the evil and the bad and redeem it for good. Friends, when fog comes on us and the hopelessness pervades our psyche, we must drop the anchor that labeled Jesus redeems. Drop it deep into the water and stay still and trust your Redeemer. He's able to take that which is bad, that which is evil, and use it for good. So friends, you have this option when the fog of life descends upon you to press on 
to arrogantly go about the fog thinking you know what's best. You know where to go. Or you have the option of dropping hook. And I would ask and I would pray that indeed when the fog of life comes, you would drop hook. And when you're tossing those hooks overboard, you're remembering Jesus is relating to me in the midst of this. Jesus is still ruling. Jesus is redeeming. Would you pray? Oh, Lord, the fog of life is not fun. And I know that there's friends in here and friends online that are going through the fog right now. They feel lonely, they feel isolated, and sometimes they feel hopeless. Lord, may you show yourself to them as, as one who knows what it's like to go through the fog. Would you show yourself as one who is ruling? Show yourself as one who's redeeming, who's taking all the evil, all the fog of this life and redeeming it for good. We thank you for this message, that this story that you went through, indeed it does bring comfort.